So that sense of, oh, could I have done something better? Uh, you know, and, and in fact, it can go so far that those doctors socially isolate themselves and become quite anxious and depressed. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Medical Protection's Case Files podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Marwick. I've titled today's episode, My Treatment Was Right, Why Did I Get a Complaint? We'll be using an actual case to discuss why, when something goes wrong, some patients put in a complaint against the doctor, even if there's been no evidence of negligence or error. We'll be discussing what we can do as doctors to lessen the chance of getting such a complaint. As always, these podcasts are based on real cases, although details have been changed to protect the identity of those involved. The recordings you will hear give a shortened, dramatised version of the story for clarity. I'm talking today with Dr Julia Ambler, who works in paediatric palliative care in Durban, South Africa. Julia is one of the doctors who presents workshops to medical protection members, and in particular she facilitates a workshop about adverse outcomes. Welcome Julia, really nice to be talking to you again today. Thank you John, it's great to be here. We're going to be talking today, uh, as you know, about what to do and how to manage when things go wrong and also just why people do put in complaints. Um, and uh, I think we should start first of all with the actual case. Um, now this was uh, an experienced ophthalmologist who was involved with um, refractive laser surgery, which of course is becoming more and more common, uh, a 33 year old woman and after the operation, she developed a rare complication of severe bacterial infectious keratitis. Um, this was treated appropriately, but the patient left uh, with uh, long-term problems, basically. Uh, and she suffered, in the end, PTSD because of this experience. Uh, and she eventually brought a claim against the surgeon. Um, as you'll hear, expert opinion found that the surgeon's technical skills were appropriate. There was no negligence, there was no error. But how he managed the relationship uh, fell short of the expected standard and also uh, probably led to the complaint coming in at all. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Shall we start by just listening to the, the doctor's story? The procedure, the procedure was routine. I've done hundreds. And I really have no idea why this woman developed keratitis afterwards. It's a known complication, but extremely rare. Maybe two serious cases in 10,000. Of course, as usual, I had warned the patient of all the risks during my normal consenting process, including the chance of infection and that her dry eyes might get worse. So, five days after the treatment, she called my office to say she had some pain and couldn't see well. We were busy, but I fitted her in the same day within just a few hours. I could see immediately that her eye was badly infected. I was actually surprised she hadn't called earlier. I followed best practice and immediately took samples for culture and started her on a broad-spectrum antibiotic. The culture showed strep pneumoniae, which was sensitive to the prescribed antibiotic, but it took some weeks to settle, and 
Unfortunately, she was left with corneal scarring and her dry eyes were very persistent and hard to manage. Even after five years, she needed glasses to get her best VA. The medical expert reviewed my records. They found that the treatment had been quite appropriate, including the consenting process beforehand, the operation itself, and my subsequent management of the infection. The expert did also say that I should have spent more time on the doctor-patient relationship. My communication was below the standard expected. Apparently, a psychiatrist said that the patient suffered from PTSD, which might have been lessened if I had communicated better. This patient was very angry, and I, I did find her quite difficult to manage. Despite my reassurances that everything had been done properly, I think she always just wanted to blame me. This has all been very difficult. I, I really thought I was doing the right thing. So you can understand from the from that the the difficulty that doctors face in this situation when something's gone seriously wrong, as it obviously had here. Mm -hmm. How often do you think um, things do go wrong, Julia? Sean, it's really interesting, actually. I think consistently across countries, um, the research has shown that roughly 10% of all um, hospital admissions have some kind of adverse outcome. Um, not all of them that serious, but it is the numbers are high. And it's estimated that about half of those are preventable, which means the other half are not. So regardless like, of how- Like this case, probably. Absolutely. So no matter how technically proficient we are, conditions optimal, there are going to be things we can't predict and things are going to go wrong. So we need to know how to manage it when it does. <laughs> Absolutely. And clearly it's not just hospital things. I mean, 10% is is quite a high number, isn't it? Uh, and, and from what I understand as the research, in fact, some studies show much higher levels than even, even 10%. Uh, that's the sort of generally average number, isn't it? Yes. Um, so why we don't seem to get that many complaints, do we? Not 10% of patients complain or go to a lawyer. Um, do, do you know what that, that ratio is? Um, again, from the literature, we're looking at about 2 to 5%. Um, more recent literature shown up to 5% of those experiencing a serious adverse outcome or some kind of negligence um, complain, which is a very tiny number. Uh, and I think a lot of doctors think it's everybody. Um, and there's a huge sort of sense of defensiveness in the medical community in South Africa because litigation is on the rise. But I think it's not as prevalent as we imagine. You know, two to, yeah. two, three, four, five percent. These are low numbers of people that actually complain. And, and that's two to three percent of the people who have a serious adverse outcome. Yes, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're right. And it's the same. I'm based in New Zealand. It's the same across the world, isn't it, that um, people, doctors feel that uh, patients are going to complain very frequently, mm. when in fact, they don't. Uh, yeah. In fact, it's quite uncommon, mm. even rare, to, to get a complaint. Um, yeah. Those people who do complain, um, why is that? I think very often complaints are actually triggered by the emotions or the feelings that the patient has experienced 
during their tough time. You know, experiencing any kind of adverse outcome, even if it is a, a clinically expected uh, side effect or, or recognized complication of a treatment or an intervention, it still comes with a burden of, of emotion, you know, feeling disappointed, wanting to, to blame someone. And when they're experiencing uh, poor communication from their doctor, and just at the time when they're needing like intense communication from their doctor, they can end up feeling abandoned or feeling that the doctor just didn't care or that they are not being taken seriously. And those are often the emotions that lead patients to be angry and complain. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And our, our doctor said this patient sounded very angry. Actually, mm. we've got a recording to take things from the patient's perspective. So why don't we just listen to that? It's only a short recording just for a moment to give the patient's perspective. I'd rather forget the last five years. If I knew what was going to happen, I would have never gone through with it. With my dry eyes, I should have been told it wasn't even an option. I don't know what went wrong, but something must have caused that infection. No one should have to go through what I have. That's why I went to a lawyer. To stop it happening again. Not once has he said sorry. Not once. He just kept telling me that he'd done everything right. I don't believe a word that comes out of his mouth. Every time I saw him, he just wanted to get me out of there quickly. Like his job was done and he's got more important things to do. I still get flashbacks and panic attacks, and it's cost me a fortune. I think we can hear in that patient um, a number of different things, aren't there? I mean, she's obviously still very angry. Mm. Um, never once did he say sorry. Yeah. Do you think patients often do want that? I think so, and I think doctors um, perhaps have a fear that saying sorry is somehow uh, admitting liability or blame or guilt in some way. And mm -hmm. actually that's, I think what patients are perhaps seeking is not necessarily to, to have an apology for the, you know, making a mistake. They're looking for a real sincere expression of regret for what has happened. Um, empathy that, you know, so that I can see this has been difficult for you and I'm so sorry this has happened to you. And in no way does that indicate any kind of liability. It just indicates connection and understanding that patients are distressed um, when things go wrong. That's right. And also, of course, she got to the stage where obviously she'd lost any trust that she might have had in him mm. um, and uh, felt that he didn't care, it sounds like, you know, just wanted me to want to get me out of the room. So all of those things that you were saying about how important the, the communication is was brought out in that recording. Um, and, and why do patients complain? What are they actually hoping to gain by complaining, Julia? Well, I think you can hear what she was wanting um, from him was some kind of apology, an expression of regret, 
um, certainly to enforce accountability. So if there has been a mistake, please just be honest, tell me what's going on. And, you know, when things go wrong for patients, unless they are clinic clinicians themselves, they're not able to look at the case and, and understand it. They need the health professional to explain exactly what has happened, how it happened, why did things go wrong for them? And sometimes there are no answers, but perhaps that's also what the patient needs to hear just the truth, the absolute truth. So patients want information, they want accountability, they want that apology. And as you heard, she said something about um, want to stop it from happening again. I think when patients have suffered, it brings huge meaning for them if they know that the, if there was a deficient standard of care, that that can be corrected so pa future patients don't suffer, it kind of brings meaning. And then I think the last thing that a lot of doctors just assume most patients are after is the money, the money, the money, the money. But actually, uh, again, looking at the literature, it doesn't really support that. There are those patients who need to be reimbursed because of, of the costs that you know, they've incurred due to particular damage. But most patients are not just greedy looking for money. It takes a lot of energy and effort to complain and go further with a complaint against a doctor so usually it's for other reasons other than the money although mind you as she did say it's cost her a lot of money over the five years so they're probably she you know she she may have some costs that she's hoping if she can to to recoup some of uh, these things can be very expensive mm. one th one thing i i've often thought is how interesting it is that the research in different countries around the world shows us the same sorts of numbers in terms of the number of people complaining. Um, so even in somewhere like the States, uh, I don't know how, how litigious South Africa is, but somewhere like the States that everybody says, well, there are ambulances, uh, lawyers chasing the ambulances. Um, even there, the figures are, are what you were saying, two to 5% uh, of people who could, ha could have complained or sued uh, are doing that. And it's the same in New Zealand where we have a no-fault compensation where you cannot sue uh, a doctor um so it, it's really interesting that around the world it seems to be that complaints uh, things go wrong frequently but complaints are uncommon and mm. as you were saying the sorts of things that that lead to the complaints are really feeling abandoned and, and feeling that they haven't got enough mu mu information and yeah. and uh, you know accountability and all of those things yeah. I know, I mean, I've got a particular patient in mind that um, the child had, uh, was having a status epilepticus and got intubated. And I think the brain was already damaged by the time the child was intubated. But then the child went blue, the tube was in the wrong place. And the mother is absolutely fixated on that being the cause of her child's cerebral damage. Um, and she won't go back to that hospital. At the same time, she hasn't complained. She absolutely believes the doctors were to blame, but she has not laid a complaint. Um, but the, the, what's made her so angry, I think, is the way the nursing care and the doctor care was after that. Um, and it's, it's, it's really quite interesting to see that full range of emotions going on for a parent. And, you know, she could certainly ask for a review um, of the facts, but she hasn't even done that. I think because it is a lot of effort to complain, hugely emotional. Um, so even if there is valid reason to complain, very few people do. Isn't it interesting? What's it like for a doctor who does get the complaint? I, I mean, this our ophthalmologist, while he sounded quite contained, did say 
you know, that it had been very difficult. Um, yeah, it is hugely stressful. I mean, I think most of us go to work every day to do a good job. Very few of us seek out to harm patients on a day-to-day -day basis. So when things have gone wrong for the patient, even if we're not to blame, even if it is a recognized complication um, and that we've warned the patient that it could happen, it's still, it's not what we wanted for the patient either. And there's that sense of, of guilt and shame and real fear uh, that can occur in the doctor. And, and Professor Wu did a lot of research around the doctor being the second victim when our patients experience an adverse outcome. And that's because we're not sociopaths. We, we really want the best for our patients. So that sense of, oh, could I have done something better? Uh, you know, and, and in fact, it, it can go so far that those doctors socially isolate themselves and become quite anxious and depressed to start practicing defensive medicine um, and possibly even, you know, are not able to practice medicine after that. So that there really can be very serious consequences for doctors um, emotionally when things have gone wrong for the patient. Yeah, absolutely. And, and isn't it interesting? I think sometimes those emotions, when you, when you feel you haven't made an error, uh, you, you still have those emotional reactions to something having gone wrong and I wonder I mean I listening to the doctor it almost sounded like he was uh, getting defensive and and the patient said he kept on telling her that he'd done everything right that defensive attitude could actually make things worse couldn't it because the patient is hearing it one way uh, the doctor's doing it because maybe they they feel uncomfortable about things having gone wrong they, they hate the idea that, that they've done something that would be be wrong yeah. mm. the, the two the two things together are very difficult mm. and it makes complete sense and and i think this is where we as doctors need to check ourselves uh that that because defensiveness doesn't help the patient what is the patient looking for they need to be heard they need to be validated they need the empathy from us they need they need us to understand their distress um, and if we kind of just come in with our own stuff and, and be a block that really it, it creates this huge disconnect um, where the doctor's not really meeting the needs of the patient, which is going to frustrate the patient and make them more likely to complain. And we can understand why you would feel defensive in that situation. I, I feel very sad for this poor doctor who's you know, undergone this journey with the patient. But you know, she's feeling abandoned because he, he's uncomfortable and he's not managing it well from a communication perspective. Absolutely. Um, before we talk about <clears throat> how maybe we should, uh, we should deal with these situations, um, I'm just wondering, do you think, I mean, we, people, uh, medical councils and bodies around the world are promoting <clears throat> the idea of open disclosure, of us, of us being open rather than uh, closing doors and not saying anything. And I think we'd all agree that's right. But I know doctors don't always feel very comfortable about that and whether there is actually, whether they're in fact risking, you already mentioned the idea of, of saying sorry, meaning admitting liability. How do doctors feel, do you think, about the idea of, of that and, and what's the right and wrong of it? Certainly, I think most doctors know that telling the truth and the whole truth to patients is the right thing to do. But it is, I mean, there's the songs written about sorry being the hardest word to say. And that's for a reason. It's very difficult to, to um, admit 
that you you might have made a mistake or you might have done something wrong. But even when you haven't, just verbalizing those words is, is extremely difficult and and very uncomfortable. And it can it gets very hard for doctors um, to just admit that they are sorry. Um, I think it's hard for anybody, but in this kind of situation where we are held to a very high standard um, by our patients, often put on a pedestal by our patients, saying sorry is enormously difficult. So, Julia, if you were advising doctors what to do, I mean, hopefully for an individual doctor, they don't that often have to front up to a, a patient where there's been a serious adverse outcome, but they, they might. And in a career, there will be times. Um, what advice do you give, you know, in, in preparing for that particular um, episode, that consultation, that meeting, wherever or whenever it might be? Um, mm. what, what should you do beforehand? I think that is the key, is to be prepared, is to make sure that you have the full facts of the case. Uh, I'd be, be hesitant to, to delay that conversation before getting all the facts, because the longer you wait, the more anxiety and frustration can build from the patient side. But when that conversation at meeting has to happen, I think to have all the facts, because speculating doesn't help the patient, guessing what's happened doesn't help. But if we really don't know, being honest with the patient is great. I actually don't understand what has happened here and perhaps setting another appointment for a future date when more facts are available might be useful. The other things to think about is perhaps setting the right time aside. This is not a corridor conversation. If a patient has experienced an adverse outcome, they, they need your time and they need to be in a safe place where a decent conversation can take place. And then consider having someone with you, perhaps a senior person or another colleague that can perhaps act as a scribe and as a witness um, and just a bit of support. And then also from the patient side, allow them to invite a family member, someone that is important for them, just to give them the support that they're needing. Um, it's a good way to prepare. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. And some general principles. I mean, you've already mentioned um, trying not to be defensive uh, uh, anything else i think avoiding an argument at all cost is is hugely important even if we know we're right winning the argument does not doesn't serve anybody it just escalates a situation which we should be trying to diffuse so really kind of avoiding words like but and Yes, but or, or with all due respect, those kinds of terms and phrases are what really drive people crazy. So listening and developing your one's empathy skills are, so are key in avoiding an argument and being able to fully appreciate without blame, without any kind of um, you know, anything else attached to it, just appreciating the patient's distress and listening to them um, in terms of showing that empathy can make an enormous difference. And of course, sometimes patients can be very angry in these situations. I mean, understandably so, can't they? Mm. So, so what, what, what does, how do you deal with, with the angry patient? <laughs> Not run away, that's for sure. I think, <laughs> I think when one really has to remain calm, which can be difficult when someone is coming at you in a very angry and aggressive manner and accusing you of things that you perhaps don't feel that you've done, it is incredibly difficult just to let it go. One of the things that really helps is to reframe the patient and look at them as somebody who has suffered or has to, who has experienced an outcome that they are not happy with or they're disappointed. And the minute we start to look at the patient that way, 
our behavior is it's easier to get our behavior in check. So MPS has a wonderful model that they've de developed called the assist model. I don't know, John, if we've got time to quickly whip through. Well, just, just tell us briefly about that and then we'll, we'll, we'll know a bit about it. And, and there's members can, of course, get more about this. Just run through that quickly for me. So I love it. And in fact, some of my colleagues have laminated this model um, as a framework, just because you might not do this every day. Well, I hope you're not going to have to do it every day. But we talk about acknowledging that someone has experienced an adverse outcome off straight off um, the bat and getting that sorry. So the S of this of assist stands for sorry, saying sorry very early. And it's not necessarily sorry I did something wrong, but sorry for what you've experienced. And then the second S is really getting their story out. And this is our opportunity to listen, just to really listen to a patient's story, encouraging them to tell us exactly what they've experienced, what they've gone through. And the whole time they're talking, we can show empathy and listen and concentrate and show concern for, for their story. And if you're really listening, you're going to feel those things for the patient rather than being defensive. So it's like we always talk about lancing an emotional axis and um, getting that all that stuff out that needs to come out. Um, is a really good way to to get the patient a bit more calm and then a lovely and I, think, I think when patients have really been listened to it's quite hard for them to maintain a level of of anger isn't it they will they will gradually i've, I've seen this happen yeah mm -hmm. gradually reducing Brad, anger. yeah you get that anger right out um, and then giving their story back to them with empathy. So showing that you've listened by repeating their story back to them. I hear what oh. you've said. You were very frustrated. You're in a lot of pain. This has been a difficult time. Really coming back to them with those kinds of phrases, paraphrasing their story, um, just in, like really reinforces the fact that you heard them and you understood that there was, in fact, medical facts of the case, but also the distress that they have been through. And what we see with that very quickly, that starts to diffuse all that anger. And then you can move on to a phase where you can ask, so the I stands for inquire, did you have any questions for me specifically that you would like me to answer? And by now, hopefully your patient is a little bit more rational and more inclined to listen to your explanations. Because if we try and explain things too soon, they're not ready. They're still feeling emotional, they need to be heard. But in the second half, when you get them to ask their questions, the S stands for um, uh, solutions. So finding a mutually agreeable way forward with the patient, not just telling them what you think, but asking them what they think. And then the T stands for travel. And this is so important. It, it's, it really means we're talking about non-abandonment. You know, they heard that patient feeling like he was rushing her out. He just wanted her out of the room. And that is the worst we can do for our patients because if they feel that we really care and that we're willing to go the journey with them, travel with them on this path. Um, it's really reassuring and comforting for a patient. Even if they have been initially very angry, knowing that you care and you're going to be there to see it through makes an enormous difference. Thanks, Julia. I, th I think that model, the assist model, which I'm familiar with as well, it's, I think it's probably one of the best uh, models, if you like, mnemonics that I've had. And, we, and medical protection have a number of these. Uh, and I think it, it's very, very useful. I can use it actually even with an angry patient, even if something hasn't necessarily gone wrong. If they're angry for whatever reason, that initial just acknowledging, saying, sorry, you feel that way or sorry, whatever. Uh, and then asking them for their story so that you can repeat it back and, and mm -hmm. show that you've really listened. 
Yeah, it's an incredible model. In fact, um, one of my colleagues said the other day she used it with her husband when <laughs> having an argument. Really assist in that situation, I'm sure. <laughs> Julia, we're pretty well at the end. Is there any advice you give to doctors to how to manage their own emotions? And, you know, if something has gone wrong, how to manage with that second victim, that very difficult situation? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing is to acknowledge that you're experiencing emotional distress yourself. And we're not great at self-care, generally speaking. I'm generalizing horribly now, but we don't. We don't sort of attend to our own emotional needs. But if, if we let that go and we sit with this anxiety and worry, it really can escalate into a situation where perhaps we are no longer able to practice or we start practicing particularly defensive medicine. And we see this that one once a doctor has had one complaint, they're more likely to have a second and a third. And it's almost a snowball effect that those doctors that are frequently complained about um, will get more complaints. And, and we think this is possibly linked to lack of emotional care. So certainly phoning medical protection is an option. And they will offer advice and support for doctors having going through a complaint. But before that happens, before there's a complaint lodged, recognize that you're not okay. And perhaps you need to attend your employee assistance program if there is one at your, your hospital or seek professional help from a colleague or a professional psychologist to make sure that you're attending to your own needs. Julia, thank you very much. It's been a really interesting conversation that we've had and, and covered some really important points I just hope that most of our listeners don't have to deal with this very soon. But if they do, you've given them something which will assist. Mm. Thanks very much. So that's the end of my conversation with Julia. And I thought it was fascinating, really, all the information about uh, why patients complain, the fact that they don't very often, and then how it affects us as doctors and how sometimes we can become defensive and these things just make it more difficult for the patient to cope. If you'd like to learn more and you're a member of Medical Protection, please do take the opportunity to look at our e-learning opportunities. So there's uh, some webcasts, some workshops, uh, which will go into the assist model in much more detail. Links for this can be found in the episode description below. And that's the end of today's podcast. My treatment was right. Why did I get a complaint? If you're new to podcasts, maybe listening for the first time, be sure to subscribe to the channel. It'll make it easier for you in the future. And you can, of course, access the podcast through Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about medical protection, or if you're already a member and would like a certificate for uh, CPD purposes, uh, look for the details in the episode description. So until next time, I've been your host, John Mark.